Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I'm excited today to be talking to a man that's, I guess, almost all the way across the world, maybe halfway across the world. It's a man I've been learning from recently. I'm talking to talking to non-tenant, man. You doing well? I am doing very well. Thank you. Good deal. Why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we'll just get right into our questions. Mm-hmm. Father, we just thank you for this time. I thank you for the opportunity to talk to Non. I pray that this would be a time that honors you and is helpful to everybody that's listening in. I pray for the pastors specifically, that they would be encouraged and emboldened to step up into all that you've called them to be as a man. I pray for myself as well, as I, as I learned from him in this interview, that I would be encouraged and challenged. And ultimately, God, we want to honor you in everything. And so we pray that the, the words of our heart, meditations of our you know, words of our mouth and meditations of our heart would be honoring to you. And we just trust you're going to lead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Why don't you, for the sake of those who may not know who you are, would you go ahead and just uh, give us an update? Tell us who you are. Tell us a little bit about your family and then what it is that you do. I am non-tenant. I live in New Zealand, which makes me very famous in America because there are very few people who live in New Zealand and even less of note. And I work as a web designer and copywriter. I work for myself. I do freelance work and I am the creative director of It's Good to Be a Man, which is my main claim to fame now or my main claim to infame as the case may be. That's right. Uh, I've got a beautiful wife and four children. And we live on a quarter, acre, a quarter acre block at the moment, which we're trying to do up in order to be able to buy a larger section so that we can have some kind of a, a multi-generational property. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure that you've definitely in your work with It's Good to Be a Man earned a few uh, uh, fans and people that have been supporters and certainly earned a few haters as well along the way. <laughs> it is that kind of work. That's right. Uh, so is New Zealand, is that where, wasn't it Lord of the Rings that was filmed there? Several movies have been filmed there. Is that right? Yeah. So one of the things that New Zealand is actually kind of known for since, especially Lord of the Rings, is because we have a surprising amount of beautiful landscape for such a small place. And I suppose we have an, an industry around filmmaking, which sprang up a, a while ago, especially around Peter Jackson. And mm-hmm. so we are we're kind of a destination for filming, I think. I'm not particularly knowledgeable about how it all works, but there are a few movies that have been made here, or at least a large portion of the filming has taken place here. Nice. So with that landscape in the mountainous region around there, I mean, you, you hit in the mountains. I mean, what do you guys do for fun? Well, we don't actually hit the mountains. Uh, the mountains are primarily in the South Island. We're in the North Island, so it's quite a way. Um, you know, it's not quite a way in American <laughs> terms, but it's a reasonable trip for us still but we live in what would be considered the shire if you think of the lord of the rings yeah Um, we're about 45 minutes away from where the shire was actually shot and it's also very beautiful um basically the waikato is a big peat peat valley and so it's very fertile and uh, lots of rolling hills around it and uh, beautiful grasses and woods and that kind of thing so we try to get out usually we try to do a day trip once a month (laughs) where we can go and explore some new place that we haven't been or some place that we really enjoyed going previously. Very cool. Man, that's awesome. Okay. So you're building websites and doing this freelance work from home in New Zealand. And somehow you're at work with Michael Foster 
who lives in Ohio doing this work at It's Good to Be a Man. And you said you're the creative director there, but you're also on the show and you do a lot of stuff uh, just with all things. It's good to be a man. So how in the world did you get connected with Foster and how did that friendship start and how did you get involved with It's Good to Be a Man? Well, It's Good to Be a Man is only the two of us, at least at the moment. Um, we take the, the, the titles creative director and managing director in order to emphasize that we do intend to treat it as a business. Um, but it's a, a fairly grandiose title for, for what I really do. But I, I'm not quite sure exactly how we met. We came across each other online. And I believe that he first came across me because I have a blog where I'm not very active anymore, but I did used to write a lot on all kinds of abstruse theological topics that just caught my interest. And one of those topics was the nature of the sons of God and the Old Testament, whether they are angels or whether they are just, um, you know, human judges. Yeah. And Foster and I actually disagree on that still, although I think our positions are much more closely aligned than they used to be, which is quite interesting. Okay. But he came across my blog. He's like, oh, this guy's kind of crazy, but he's saying some interesting things. And then I went through a kind of cage stage, red pill, um, intersexuality, what's going on here, and started posting a lot on Facebook about basic uh, intersexual truths that I thought needed to be stated that weren't being stated by people in the church. Mm -hmm. And it was a pretty negative kind of trajectory that I was on. I was, you know, how a cage stage is. You tend yeah, to right. want to, to rant at everyone about all the problems, but you don't have any kind of constructive solutions. You just want everyone to agree with you. Right. So that was, he found me saying this stuff. And at the time he was researching masculinity as well, because from a pastoral perspective, he was discovering that a lot of people, especially in the younger generation, he wasn't able to help them with a lot of the issues that they were facing. Um, mm -hmm. the, the world had changed so rapidly that he was trying to figure out what had happened. And he didn't find a lot of other Christians who were saying anything like that or willing to discuss it. And so the fact that I was, and that I was willing to do it under my own name rather than hiding behind a pseudonym yeah. was you know, interesting to him. And so he, he got in touch and he said, Hey, do you want to come on board and let's do something together because we're saying basically the same stuff. Yeah. And his focus from the beginning was always very positive. He was saying, you know, I want to develop a positive doctrine of manhood from scripture. I want to know what it is uh, to be masculine, to be a man. I want to help other men to be masculine and be men. And I was just kind of instinctively like, yes, this is what I need. And mm -hmm. so I came on board and I started working with him and the, the positive direction was really, really helpful. And it's good to be a man for me has basically been a project of repentance where I've been learning about my effeminacy and how to repent of it in order to be a better man, which mm. has been going fairly well. I wouldn't say that I'm uh, a great success story, but I'm a lot better than I used to be. And it gives me a, a solid foundation for sharing with other men what I've been through, what I've done um, and helping them to do the same. Fantastic. And that's what I've found is that it is some deconstructive work that you guys do, but primarily it's building. It's, it's, it's a positive, it's a, it's a mission, it's a goal, something to aim at. And uh, it's not a, let's wallow in the fact that effeminacy is everywhere and that men don't know what it means to be men and women don't know what it means to be a woman. Um, but it is a positive direction. And I've loved that. I, I tell you what I read, I've been in ministry now for 12 years and I read uh, back in, I don't know, the mid 2000s, um, uh, recovering the roles of biblical manhood and womanhood and was just steeped in complementarianism for years. And then as things developed over the last, I don't know, four or five years, I, I kind of uh, was red pilled without knowing what red pill was and uh, had been off Twitter. I think that's a lot of Christians, actually. 
a yeah. lot of them don't know what red pill is and we seldom talk about it because mm. honestly there's actually not that much value in going down <laughs> that rabbit hole right yeah but i i uh when i was off twitter i jumped back on twitter and uh, i preached a sermon series a few years ago and uh just on being human and it was out of first uh, corinthians chapter 11 and dove into the natural law and how natural law informs some of the problems that the church in Corinth was dealing with and how many of the reasons we're so ill-prepared for the gender confusion today is because we have not dove into natural law and just some of the basic common sense realities about how God has made the man to work and the woman to work and what our physical bodies communicate. And so when I found it's good to be a man, it was so helpful. And so it was only, I don't know, seven or eight months ago. And I just appreciate you guys and what you're doing. So thank you. Um, thank you. Why is the work, why is it needed? Why is it so needed in this moment? Um, in this, you know, you're in New Zealand, we're in America, but we're very global. We know what's going on around the world. Why is this work of positively teaching men how to be men? Why is that so needed today? In one sense, it's a really easy question to answer because you just have to look around you and see the state of the church and see the inability of pastors to discipline their congregations of um, larger denominations to discipline pastors who are out of step with biblical faith. It's all primarily based around this idea that you, you have to maintain the peace. You have to be uh, harmonious and, and not rock the boat. Mm-hmm. You can't cause people discomfort. Um, and if you're the one that causes discomfort, then you're the one who's divisive and you're the one who's actually, you know, it's the, the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. Yeah. <laughs> so the 11th commandment has taken over from all of the previous 10. And that's why we need this today. But in another sense, it's actually a much more difficult question to answer because there are so many, um, there's a, a nexus of theology that kind of coalesces around masculinity and uh, in a sense, post, post-millennialism, what are your view of the yeah. eschatologies and um, all of these kinds of issues, ecclesiology, um, they, they tie into each other in complicated ways, which even now, as I'm, you know, several years into this process and this project, it's still, there are still connections that I make that I'm like, Oh, that makes sense now. And um, I can see how this thing led to that thing. And they're completely, they seem completely separate and unrelated. And yet um, there's a a connection there. Mm -hmm. So I I won't, I won't go too much into that. It's just um, something to be aware of is that uh, answering the question might seem simple on the surface of it, but as you delve deeper, you realize just how deep it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this. And I've been thinking about this for a while. I actually spoke on this post post-millennial patriarchy in the home church and mm-hmm. world just a couple of months ago. In my mind, there's parallels. And I just want to pick your brain a little bit. Do you see a connection with the uh, recent rise in post-millennialism over the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years and a, a discovery of biblical manhood and womanhood for that manner in a patriarchal understanding of the scriptures? And uh, do you see a connection there? I do. And the reason that I do is that the uh, the whole concept of what the gospel does has been feminized in the evangelical church. And when you return to the scriptures, you can kind of come at patriarchy two ways. You can come at patriarchy and then you can look at what the implications of that are for mm-hmm. everything else the church does. Right. Or you can come at it, and this is actually more the way that I came at it. You can come at it from the perspective of 
studying what the kingdom of God is and why the gospel is con- consistently described as the gospel of the kingdom rather than mm-hmm. the gospel of atonement or the gospel of justification. Uh-huh. It's always the gospel of the kingdom. And you can ask yourself, what is the gospel supposed to do? And you can look at the Great Commission and you can say, well, the, the Great Commission is to disciple not just <coughs> people, it's to disciple the nations. And when you come at it that way, then it leads you naturally into having a much higher view of what the church's mission is and also a much higher view of the men who are supposed to be continuing that mission. And then you start to ask, why is the church not doing this? And you start to mm-hmm. see all these kind of weird connections and historical events. And you start to realize that lots of things have happened uh, in the church, which has weakened it. Mm-hmm. And you see a great deal of things that need to be excised and, and right. uh, repentance that the church needs to take part in and uh, to, to turn the nation around. So you can go all kinds of directions from there. I mean, you can just start with universal suffrage, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. That in itself is a, a terrible failure of the church. Yeah. And um, moving and move on from there. Yeah, that's good. Um, was there a particular moment that led you into, uh, for me, it was the end of 2018. I'm preaching and uh, calling people, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me out of Luke 9. And and then I get to, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of him before my father and the holy angels. And that shook me to the core that the fact that we don't get, there's no option for the believer, no, op- no option for the pastor. There's no option for lay people. There's no option for anybody who bears the name of Christ to be ashamed of Christ in, in his words. So whatever's in the Bible, there can't be any point of embarrassment. And liberalism always starts in that point of embarrassment because it grows. Okay, I'm embarrassed of that passage. Now I'm embarrassed in this passage. I want to shy away from this in light of who's in front of me. Uh, in pastoral ministry, that happens with being owned by five women in the church that you're terrified of. So you don't say what needs to be said because of those five women. And five women, and these these uh, metaphor or these uh, um, illustrative five women here in every single church across the country controls 75% of pastors across the country. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So that moment at the end of 2018 was really what shook me. Wait a minute. I can't be apologetic about anything God has to say. Was there a particular moment for you that drove you to that cage stage, whatever that was? Well, I wouldn't say that the cage stage was related to uh, a lack of shame about what scripture says. I'd say that lack of shame about what scripture says was, was beaten into me or the shame was beaten out of me more or less at my conversion because I was a very outspoken atheist before that. Oh, okay. And so I was, involved i've always been involved in one kind of online ministry or another whether it was anti-christian or pro-christian okay so i would spend a lot of time on forums arguing with christians and you know you guys are stupid and how can you believe in free will wow wow and when i was converted i was still on those forums and i i had to make a decision do i just quietly disappear or do i turn around and say hey guys i was wrong uh this is what you should be believing and this is why and i made the decision well I've, I've always been a scrappy kind of guy, I guess. And I made the decision I, I have to stay and tell them. Mm-hmm. And so I ate a great deal of crow quite early on and <laughs> lost a lot of friends quite early on. And mm-hmm. so that just became kind of part of the course. It's like, I don't care what people think. I want to know what scripture says. I want to know what God says yeah. and what God says. I'm going to relay faithfully as I can. Amen. Amen. That's good. So the cage well, sage and patriarchy came along later because I was investigating. I went down this rabbit hole of what the kingdom is. And then it kind of led into uh, the, the catalyst for it was a, an article. I think John, John Piper wrote an article or was okay. on desiring God anyway, about Calvinism and niceness. Hmm. I think it was. And so I wrote a, a post on Calvinism, masculinity and niceness. And one guy linked Delrock in that post okay. and helped to uh, somewhat, uh, well, that, that 
the stuff that I've been thinking at that time was fairly um, basic. It was reasonably shallow. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking at what scripture says about men and women and trying to figure out what are the major beats here. And at that time I was just a complementarian, you know, mm-hmm. but I was bothered by the fact that so many Calvinists were so, uh, so browbeaten by Arminians going, oh, you guys are mean. Like, mm-hmm. okay, but suppose we are, who cares? You know, suppose we, <laughs> we are, suppose we're being mean. What does that have to do with the truth of what we're saying? Mm-hmm. And secondly, I've been brow, being browbeaten by Arminians is mean. They're mean to us. And yeah. yet they call us the mean ones. Yeah, so that's I was so just true. basically pointing out the double standard and being like, well, look, you, you can, obviously we should be kind to people, but let's not sacrifice um, iron sharpening iron and the loving rebuke on the altar of niceness. Yeah, it's it's crazy for the for every you know arrogant, prideful, mean Calvinist that I've met. I've met at least five mean, arrogant, uh, antagonistic, you know, hardcore either non-Calvinist uh, or Armenians. I mean, it's unbelievable. The I mean, it's mm-hmm. gas gaslighting to the to the you know highest extent. But uh, yeah. all right, so pastoral ministry. One of the things I'm trying to do is speak to pastors and to challenge them mm-hmm. about these particular issues, but. I mean, a myriad of other issues as well. I've gone, you know, talked through, um, you know, doing funerals to weddings, just basic counsel on pastoral ministry, how to do biblical counseling, when to, when to recognize that this is in the area of mental health and how to seek out, you know, professional help beyond what you can provide and um, all sorts of stuff. Um, But one of the things that I've seen over the years as I've been working with pastors is that many pastoral failures, sin failures, not just moral failures, but sin failures of pastors deal it, it, it's failure in the area of manhood, of just Christian manhood, just being a man, just being a Christian guy that loves the Lord, loves his family, loves his kids, works hard. And it's, it's failure in that area that ends up disqualifying him. And so it's not just, it's not just people in the church that are struggling with, with understanding what it means to be a Christian man. It's pastors and not just struggling in their manhood. It's effeminacy that is across the board. We talked mm-hmm. a little bit before we were coming online. I see a, problem in the pulpit of effeminacy in the pulpit and in the pastorate and in men and churches. And I think they're following in the footsteps of their elder teams and of their pastors. And so do you as a layperson see that as an issue and what do you have to say about it? I see it as an enormous issue. And I have to say that it is very, very bad and it is very destructive. Um, so I was in a church, a reformed Baptist church and the pastor there was <coughs> your standard effeminate white knight. And he had a team around him who were your standard kind of beta orbiters as people call them. And it was a recipe for disaster in that church. That church is now essentially a cult. Um, mm. I, I was excommunicated from because of the fact that I was saying these things about masculinity and, um, it was very much an 11th commandment kind of situation. And it was very much uh, manipulative and guided by backbiting and um, kind of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes rather than a a standard manly confrontation of the actual facts and Mm -hmm. a a working through the facts. So I've seen it firsthand that it is extremely destructive. And you're also correct in saying that it's not that there's a, a masculinity problem in the church and that pastors are, kind of it's not like the pastors are struggling against it trying to teach them in the mm-hmm. pastors are the source of the problem the right. reason there's a masculinity in the church is because of the leadership it works from the top down yeah. um the fish rots from the head as they say so the fact that 
you don't have very many masculine pastors in the church is teaching the men who stay in the church to be effeminate. And it's also ensuring that the, the men in the church who don't want to be effeminate, the men in the church who are just naturally disgusted by that, um, are either forced out or don't even bother coming in the first place. Yeah. Amen. And I think one of the biggest things that, you know, you mentioned the word white knight and the biggest caricature of this for people to be able to understand some of the things that we're talking about here is that pastors will, will tend to just rail on men and it's father's day. The men come, they hear how terrible they are. And a lot of these guys are actually better men than the pastors that are preaching to them. And then on mother's day, it comes and this, this is, again, just for, for guys that are just starting to think through this stuff, and maybe this is kind of some new content uh, for you, it's Mother's Day, and you preach about how amazing the women are. And you have a bunch of pastors who know well how to speak to women, and they don't know how to speak to men or lead men because they don't, they don't know how to be one. And so I, right. it is. It's a destructive problem just everywhere. Um, how have you guys, you know, for, for the guys, most of the guys that are listening in are going to be familiar with your content uh, and it's good to, be, good to be a man. But if you're just talking to a group of pastors, I mean, you have this opportunity right now, you're, you're talking to pastors. For, mm. for those that are struggling through this, what do they need to do? I mean, what, how are they going to be better men, just Christian men? And what do they need to do in their congregations to make sure that their church is not, that they're not leading with effeminacy and that they're leading in the way that God would have them? Well, obviously some self-reflection is required. I would focus on questions like if I say, if I see something in scripture, say I'm preaching through, um, I know first Timothy, first Peter, pick anything that's going to cause some kind of offense to women. I come across a passage that speaks of, you know, first Corinthians 11, the woman is the glory of the man. Um, when I come across that, it is my first impulse to be, how can I, how can I not deal with this? Or how can I make this sound good to the women? Because I think most pastors, that's the impulse is how can I make sure the women approve of what I'm going to say here, as opposed to how can I ensure that God approves of what I say here and of how I guide the women to approve of what he says here. Hmm. So it's essentially, uh, it's the same basic problem that Adam had is inverting the, the natural order of yeah putting the woman over the man, uh, deferring to the woman instead of telling the woman, this is the way that it needs to be. And even saying that people are going to you know, clutch their pearls. <gasps> How can you tell women the way it needs to be? That's just misogyny. Well, you know, God made you a pastor, didn't he? Uh, you've been called to, to tell both men and women the way that it's supposed to be. You can tell men, but you can't tell women. Why are women naturally m more sinless than men? Do they, do they not sin? Do they not have sin problems? Are they not inclined mm. to error? Um, you know, Paul says that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. And he uses that as a basis for saying that women shouldn't teach. So you yeah. need to think about that. Yeah. So being able to simply look at the hard passages of scripture as they <laughs> sometimes call and ask yourself why you think they're hard mm -hmm. and ask yourself, are you able to preach those passages without fear? Mm -hmm. That would be uh, a strong place to start because scripture, the two of the defining characteristics of a man in scripture are firstly strength, which means both physical strength and, and mental strength, spiritual strength, being courageous, be strong and courageous, um, act like men. Mm -hmm. And secondly, wisdom, the, the ability to know God's law and apply it correctly in the situation that you've been put into. So if you are looking at yourself and you're saying, well, 
either I want to twist the wisdom of God uh, or I want to be weak about presenting the wisdom of God, mm-hmm. then you are f- by definition being effeminate in those things because that is undermining what it means to be a man. You're failing as a man, not just as a Christian. All Christians should be strong and wise, but a Christian woman isn't failing as a woman if she's not strong. And she isn't mm-hmm. failing as a woman if she's not wise. She's told to ask her husband. Mm-hmm. Her husband is failing if he's not being wise because then he can't teach his wife, which is his duty. Mm-hmm. And he's failing as a man in being strong uh, if he's weak because one of the defining characteristics of men is to be strong. And that's a duty as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the central diagnostics then, if, if a pastor is walking in effeminacy, is how he speaks to men. And women. so discipleship is engendered. It's not androgynous. You can't have Christian discipleship that isn't discipleship as a man or as a woman. And how many women across this country have been tragically neglected? And I think at the epicenter of whether or not, so, I mean, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm just kind of consolidating here the thoughts. And it mm. seems like a point of, of diagnosis here is if you're not willing to address women as women as God would have you and men as men as God would have you, which is so much, uh, you know, I guess um, not easier, but all, all too common. And the, the tragic neglect is, and what's led to egalitarianism, what's led to, uh, I mean, feminism over the, over the years has been men who have been scared to say to women what God says to women. Would you that's say right. that's a, an accurate and fair diagnostic? I would say that's exactly, exactly accurate. And the reason primarily is that men respond to rebuke much more favorably than women do. Men are made for that kind of combative, competitive um, relationship where mm-hmm. they test each other and they, they work out their hierarchies by competition. Whereas yeah. women are made to um, establish a group harmony and anyone who threatens that harmony needs to be excluded and ostracized. And so when you try to correct women, the natural response isn't, ha, how, yeah, put your sword up so I shall defeat you and prove you wrong. The, yeah. the natural response is, oh, you're being mean. Yeah. And uh, an effort to, to silence, essentially. And this is why we say that, th- this is what we're describing when we say white knights. So mm-hmm. White knights are people who defer to women. They, they want to, they seek their approval from women and they're willing to fight other men in order to prove their worth to women. So they, yeah. everything revolves around what women think of them. And this is why we say that white knights actually hate women. Mm-hmm. Because if you're yeah, a pastor, it's not loving. It's not loving to refuse to disciple a woman in God's word. It's not loving to refuse to tell a woman what God actually requires of her, to leave her in her sin and Mm. in her ignorance. That's hate. That's what the scripture actually calls hate. So if you hate women, but you think that you're being kind to them and you have a high opinion of yourself and you like their approval, that's a very messed up place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Very good stuff. And in all this, I think that's the, one of the things that I've seen from, from you and Foster has been, if you're, if you truly do love your wife and you love the congregation in an appropriate manner, both the men and the women in a church, then the pastor is going to say what God says in, and not, and not an apologetic way. I'm sorry, ladies, but God says it this way, but in a beautiful way, this is what God has instructed you to do in every way. A man should want to know every way that everything he's been commissioned to and everything he's been prohibited from, and we should say, all right, cool. And for a woman, the same thing, whatever God commissions her to and whatever God prohibits her from, her response should be, cool, that sounds great, let's do it. And that's withheld, and that is in no way loving. And it actually is a good good transition point here. I've got a, 
question for you because I saw this a while back and I've just been intrigued and kind of watching, like, you know, wishing I could be a fly on the, on the wall. Um, Toby Sumter, who says some great things. I've learned a lot of things from, from Pastor Toby and, and uh, has been a friend for a few years now. And uh, Brian Sauvey reposted on Gab um, what Toby said. And Toby was actually quoting Pastor Doug Wilson, which I know you guys really love. And I mean, everybody loves Doug, unless you're one of the f- people who absolutely hates Doug. Um, Triggered. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most of the people that are listening in do love Doug Wilson. But uh, um, and then Brian Sobey, as I said, reposted it. And I love those guys. And and you took uh, issue with the post. And you said, actually, I, I really don't like this. I'd love to talk to you guys about it. And I want to know what you took issue with. I think I know. But I want to hear right from you. I want to read this for our listeners and then would love for you to respond. And since I know you appreciate those guys as well, just so you know, everybody out here, we're not in any way speaking disparagingly about Indeed. Toby Sumter or Brian Sauvey. These guys yeah. are uh, – I'm older than Brian, younger than Toby, but – both of those men I, I love and count as friends and have learned from, but I really am interested in this. So uh, you said on here, uh, I believe that one of the greatest, this is Doug Wilson. I believe one of the greatest, most potent acts of leadership and rebellion against our godless culture that a Christian man can and should implement immediately is a deep and practical reverence for his wife, his glory, the mother of his children, the grandmother of his grandchildren, the daughter of the King. To paraphrase Doug Wilson, a man rarely stands taller than when he stands for his lady. So maybe that was Toby and then paraphrase Doug at the end mm. when he says a man rarely stands taller than when he stands for his lady. So what did you take issue with about that post? Well, there are a couple of things and this is something which I think is probably more obvious if you have been deep into the red pill movement and you've become familiar with the concept of pedestalization where you put women on a pedestal and um, that's kind of fundamental to what it means to be a white knight. So I see a lot of this kind of white knight attitude, even among men who I think are quite faithful on patriarchy in general and who have been enormously helpful to me. So I would never disparage Doug Wilson. Um, I would never disparage Toby Sumter nor Brian Sauvé. He's, um, they are all men who have been enormously helpful to me and I'm very grateful for them. But on this point, I think that there is a kind of lingering white nightitude, which is for some reason, just not kind of, they don't seem to kind of twig to what's going on here. So there were a couple of key points in that post that I really disagreed with. I absolutely do not disagree with the idea of um, having a high regard for your wife. Of course, if you haven't got a high regard for your wife, what kind of a help me would she be? You know, mm-hmm. if you, in one sense, that's an indictment of you because you obviously chose very poorly, but on the other hand, it's also an indictment of her because if you have someone like the Proverbs 31 woman, who obviously is kind of almost mythically virtuous, but if you had a wife like that, obviously you would have enormous regard for her. You would hold her in high honor as indeed her husband does and her children do in Proverbs 31 itself. So no issues there whatsoever. Obviously you should have high regard for your wife, but the key word that Toby used was reverence Mm -hmm. and reverence in scripture is um, one of the translations that is also used for the term reverence in scripture is also fear. Okay. And those concepts are, if not identical, they're very closely aligned. They're, they're intertwined with each other. You reverence God. You, you, you reverence um, people who are in positions above you, p- people who are in power over you. You don't reverence people below you. That's because um, fear is connected with 
the the hierarchy of being. Mm-hmm. We fear God. We don't fear our wives. Our wives yeah. fear us. Peter says um, okay. in some translations, um, we don't fear them. And so the fact that he used the word reverence was suggested to me that what he was aiming at in that post was quite different to what I would say Proverbs 31, for instance, is aiming at with the regard of a husband for a wife. And the way that you can work that out is if you were to simply use the analogy that scripture uses and say that Christ should reverence the church, you would think that sounds borderline heretical. That sounds Mm. weird. The church should reverence Christ. But the other way around, no about that. That sounds pretty strange. And yet we have no problem with it when it's used of a husband and a wife. That, that's not quite right. And the other issue is that he said that a man rarely stands taller than when he stands for his woman. And in a sense, I, I get what he's saying there. Obviously, you'll help me. You're one, you're one flesh. So if you'll fight for anything, you'll fight for your wife. Um, right. But I'm not sure that the, the concept of fighting is in view in that post. I think it's true that a man will really fight more strongly than when he fights for his wife. But to say that he really stands taller than when he stands for his woman is, it sounds a lot like making the woman the mission. And Michael and I have been quite uh, outspoken about the fact that when you are a young man and you're developing, you're you're figuring out where you want to go with your life. Mm -hmm. One of the things you know you want is a wife. Most men want wives and that's a good thing. But the wife isn't the mission getting yeah. a wife isn't actually your mission. You, mm. you need to work out your mission first in order to have a helpmeet for your mission. A wife is a helpmeet, not a mission. Yeah. And so saying that a man really stands taller when he stands for his wife is kind of like saying a man doesn't really stand for his mission, mm. which uh, again, I don't think Toby was probably trying to say that, but yeah. it, that's what it sounded like. And I, I think there's a, a direction, the trajectory that that kind of language is moving on that troubles me. Gotcha. So if the word reference was out, and love was there, it would have been a more accurate representation of where, where he, well, I don't know what he was wanting to do with that exactly, but you would have been more comfortable if it said love rather than reverence. I would have been more comfortable if it had said love, but I don't think it would have quite had the same, uh, it wouldn't have gone in the direction that he wanted to go. I think mm-hmm. that the direction that he wanted to go was not so much that husbands should love their wives, but that there should actually be an esteem for their mm. wives because yeah. today gotcha. the term, the term love is just like an emotion to people today. Mm-hmm. You say you should love your wife. No one's going to disagree with that. But if you say you should esteem your wife, think of the, the kind of classic caricature of the husband and the wife, the wife's the ball and chain, you know, is yep. that esteem? That's not esteem. Mm-hmm. That's regarding her as a, an impediment, as something that drags you down. A wife doesn't drag you down. A good wife raises you up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's finish with that uh, on talking about the mission then. And by the way, now everybody go follow Toby and go follow, follow <laughs> Brian Sauvé. That's right. So, they're, they're great. There we go. Um, so why in marriage we could easily translate this into pastoral ministry, but you say the wife is not the mission. And mm-hmm. as we love our wives as Christ loved the church. Um, our direction isn't 100% on our wives. There's a mission here. So w- explain that. Kind of tease that out for us about why there's got to be a mission there first to bring your wife along that she comes along with you. Um, I, somehow or another it helps you in that mission, but hmm. she is not the mission itself. Explain that out a little bit for us. I guess there are a couple of ways you could explain it. The first would be psychological in the sense that if you look at the way that women work, they're, they're not made to be the mission. It's a huge psychological <laughs> burden on them. If everything that you do revolves around 
what they want. So you're, you're trying to find a wife and it's like the only thing that matters is that this woman becomes my wife. It's really needy. And it shows that you haven't got a, a kind of center of gravity of your own. You're making her the center of gravity in the relationship mm-hmm. and women aren't made for that. They become very anxious when that happens and they kind of despise men who do that because the men don't seem to have any kind of um, gravitas of their own. They're not, um, you know, needy, even men find needy men disgusting, but women find them kind of more <laughs> loathsome. I think Yeah, they're, they're essentially like children, you know, women aren't made to be sexually attracted to children. They're made to look after children and they don't want to look after men because men are made to look after them. Right. So th- that's a psychological perspective. But if you go back to the creation, if you go back to Adam, Adam was created first and he was given a mission, exercise dominion, order the world, till the ground, do these things. And then God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper helper who is meat to him. And out of the ground, he fashions all of the animals. And Adam's like, well, none of these are any good for what I need to do. They they can't help me till the ground. They can't make a home. I can't have sex with them for one thing. And so God makes Eve. And then Adam's like, whoa, this is amazing. This is exactly what I need. This is what I want. And he's really pleased with Eve. He breaks into song over Eve. Mm -hmm. He's like, wow, thanks, God. This is great. But he's pleased because Eve fills up something that he lacked mm-hmm. in doing his mission, not yeah. because Eve has now completed his life. Eve has completed the mission, not his life. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So you guys always say mission first, at least I've heard Foster say that quite a bit. Mission first. Mission and, first uh, then marriage. If you go to it's good to be a man.com, we have a short post on this, on the importance of it. We teased out, you know, the, here are the major biblical beats on why this is important. Awesome. Well, I'll put that in the show notes for sure. Okay. I want to give you a opportunity to praise God for his grace as we get ready to wrap up here. Uh, non-tenant, why do you love Jesus? That is in one sense, a really easy question to answer. And it's because he is Jesus. Hmm. And in another sense, it's a really difficult question to answer because you know, he's Jesus. There's so many places you can go there. I think that just right now off the top of my head, the main reason that I love him is because he has been so gracious in making me a man and modeling what it means to be a man and drawing me out of all of the mistakes that I'm making and leading me so gently into um, the kindness and severity of the Lord, as Mm. John puts it. Um, I think it's John. It's uh, just an amazing thing to see and is both inspiring, but also, also convicting because it means that I have an example to follow, which is impossible to live up to as a father and um, means I need his grace more, which makes me grateful for him even more. Amen. Amen. That's so good. Well, for those who have enjoyed this conversation, please tell us where we can find more of your stuff, where we can go to find it, uh, websites, podcasts, video, if you have any, where can we find more of your stuff? Well, the main place to find me is on it's good to be man.com which is where Michael and I post articles and you can also sign up for our newsletter there. So then the website is often a little bit behind in terms of content. Some of our best content is on there, but if you go to the website, you can also find links to the podcast. And most importantly, you can also sign up for the email newsletter so that you can get new content every week. Um, The newsletters are generally very high quality stuff, which doesn't come out elsewhere until much later. So that's the, the place to go. But if you also want to follow me on Gab, I'm non-tenant on Gab. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Non. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, just thanks a ton, man. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.